Good morning again. Are you warmed up yet? <clears throat> I'm not. <laughs> That's okay. We are uh, looking at Galatians chapter 5, verses 1 through 6 this morning. So if you can turn with me in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible, you should feel free to grab one from the table just outside the doors. Um, you can not only use it for the service, but if you don't own a Bible, you can take that Bible with you. Write your name in the front, keep it, then bring it back week after week as we study God's Word together. Uh, before we read uh, Galatians 5, let's pray together. Our Father, as we just sang, we, we come to you with nothing in our hands, uh, nothing uh, no, no righteousness to offer you, no, no goodness in ourselves. Uh, we come needy, needy for your grace, uh, needy for you to cleanse us from sin's guilt and power. So we come to you this morning, we come to your word, Father, and we pray that you would use your word uh, to work in our hearts to cleanse us and to renew us and to draw us close to you. Pray that you would pour out your spirit on us. I pray that you would pour out your spirit on me as I speak uh, to give me uh, the words to say uh, and to allow those words by your spirit to be effective in our hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Galatians chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Freedom is such a large topic uh, in part because it touches so many areas of our lives. Especially in the U.S., though, uh, the, the rhetoric of freedom and of liberty is everywhere. And sometimes, I think, even if you listen to Christians talk about freedom, you would think that the most important freedom that we have is the civil freedom to worship in this country. Now, that's a great freedom, and we should be thankful for that freedom. The problem is, that's not what the Bible means when it talks about freedom, ever. The Bible never refers to that kind of freedom. In fact, biblical freedom, uh, freedom that we have in the gospel, is not and cannot be hindered by government. Gospel freedom cannot be hindered by, by communism or socialism or any other ism cannot be hindered by a violent, oppressive dictatorship. It can't even be hindered by being thrown into jail or even being executed. 
In fact, gospel freedom is uh, a freedom that no one can take away from you. And yet it is a freedom that you can lose. So what is this freedom, right, that no one can take away from you but can be lost? And maybe more importantly, how do we make sure that we don't lose it? Well, that's uh, what we're going to talk about this morning. You can see in your bulletin on the back, there's an outline. There are, are two main points there. Uh, the first is that Christ has set us free. And the second is we're to stand firm in that freedom. Or to put it in question form, uh, what does it mean to be free? And how do I stand firm in that freedom? That's what we're going to talk about this morning. So first, for freedom... Christ has set us free. Uh, freedom clearly is pretty important for Paul here. Uh, freedom is both the means and the ends in that first sentence, right? Uh, uh, Christ has set us free. That's the means to the end of freedom. Christ has set us free for freedom. Uh, which means Paul is, is saying that... Uh, that we have been given freedom for freedom's sake, which maybe putting it that way sounds a little too uh, radical or amazing. But I think what Paul means here is that Christ has given us freedom because he really wants us to be free. Well, what does that mean? What does that freedom look like? Uh, there are lots of, of very precious freedoms that we enjoy in life, uh, most of which shouldn't be taken for granted. But the freedom that Paul is talking about are the freedoms that we have in Christ. Gospel freedoms that no earthly power can take away. And, and that freedom that we have in Christ is, is multifaceted, right? There are lots of different aspects to it. Uh, there are at least five that um, I want to mention. There are certainly more, but there are at least these five. There's, there's, a, there's a judicial freedom, for one. That is freedom from sin's condemnation, uh, freedom from the law's guilt, has to do with our status before God. Uh, Romans 8.1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because we've been set free from the law of sin and death. Uh, or to put that another way, right, we're free from having to perform, having to live up to the law's standards in order to gain God's approval. We're free. So in Christ, God does not condemn us, but he approves of us in Jesus, whatever other people might say. There's that judicial freedom. There's a spiritual freedom or a, or a heart-level freedom in Christ, right? Freedom from sin's reigning power. It's an internal freedom. Uh, Romans 6 talks about this. It says, in Christ, uh, we are no longer enslaved to sin. For one who has died with Christ has been set free from sin. Uh, there's also a physical freedom, believe it or not, uh, freedom from death, right? Uh, it has to do with our external condition, has to do with our eternal condition. Um, Jesus in John 11 said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Or in John 6.40, he said, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. So in Christ, we have freedom from death. Uh, there's also uh, what you might call an existential freedom, 
right? a, a freedom from, from the fear of condemnation and a freedom from the fear of death. This obviously follows from some of the other ones, but Hebrews points it out specifically in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. It says that through death, Jesus destroyed the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and delivered all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So Jesus has delivered us from slavery that comes from fear, that comes as we try to fight off the seemingly inevitable. And then finally, there is what we might call a a redemptive historical freedom, a freedom uh, that has to do with uh, where we are in history. Uh, Freedom from the Mosaic law as our guardian, right? Unlike uh, Israel of old, Romans 6.14 says, we are not under law, but under grace. And so there are these different aspects to our freedom in Christ, uh, the judicial and spiritual and physical and existential and redemptive historical. Uh, But the question is, which of those does Paul have in mind here? (laughs) What is Paul talking about? Well, Paul probably has in mind particularly two of those, uh, because he's been talking about them for a couple chapters now, freedom from the law's guilt on the one hand, freedom from the law's guardianship on the other, Uh, freedom from the law's condemnation, and freedom from the law's oversight, the oversight of the Mosaic law. Well, first, freedom from guilt. All of us, I think, it's fair to say, uh, all of us at some point feel guilty. Uh, the question is why? Uh, why do we feel guilty? Well, we feel guilty uh, maybe uh, because there's something specific that we've done wrong. Sometimes there's nothing specific, right? Sometimes we just feel guilty. We don't even know why. Um, but we just have this sense, right, that we haven't lived up. Uh, we know, some part of us knows that we're not, we're not good enough. We feel like a failure. Well, Jesus brings freedom from having to live up, freedom from guilt. And there's, there's both an objective side to this and a subjective side to this, right? Uh, so there, on the one hand, we are objectively free from guilt, Right? We, we do not stand guilty before our Father in heaven any longer if we are in Christ. The gospel is that Jesus bore our guilt on the cross. He became guilty for, uh, before God for us, um, which means though he didn't sin, uh, Jesus never sinned, he was declared to be sinful on the cross, and, and he was the scapegoat for us. Right? He bore our sins in his body on the cross. Which means that through faith in Jesus, uh, we're no longer guilty before the law. In fact, uh, quite the opposite, we are righteous, the Bible tells us, uh, because not only does Jesus take our sin and guilt on himself, but he also gives us his righteousness. Um, See, through faith, the Bible teaches we're united to Christ, we're joined to him as in a a marriage, Uh, but even more intimately than that, right? We're joined like like a fruit is to a tree, Through faith, we are united to Jesus. We are in him and he is in us, the Bible says, so that what is true of him becomes true for us, right? So he paid the penalty for sin's guilt, so our penalty has been paid, right? He is righteous, so we are righteous before our God. So we're free from sin's objective guilt before God. We stand before God. If we're in Christ, if we belong to Christ, we stand before God as his righteous children. That's the way he looks at us. 
But two, we're also, we have a subjective freedom, right? We're subjectively free from having then to feel guilty. Uh, it's, it's not that our sin shouldn't bring guilt. Uh, if, you, if you sin, right, you, you should feel guilt for that sin. That makes sense. Um, but Christ has borne our sin, which means when we sin and experience guilt, we, we don't have to just wallow in it or live with it, right? We have something we can do with it. We can take it to our Father. We can confess our sin, and we can rest in the completed work of Jesus. We don't have to stay there. We're not only free from, from the law's guilt, both objectively and subjectively, right? We're not only free from the law's guilt, but we're also free from its guardianship. Um, Paul talked about this a lot in the end of chapter 3, the beginning of chapter 4, that uh, we're, we're no longer children under age, um, but we've been given the spirit of sonship, the spirit of adoption, the spirit of maturity, and we're called to walk in that maturity in our context, uh, even without a, a rule to guide every step. Um, it doesn't mean we have no guide, right? The scriptures are our guide. The Ten Commandments are our guide. Christ is our guide. But we must creatively apply the moral law to our situations. Um, our temptation, though, is to always want to go back to the situation of Israel to have a very clear-cut uh, law. Our temptation is to expand on what God has said, right? to make a new law, to make a new set of rules that every Christian must follow. Uh, we tend to make our application of Scripture uh, for all people everywhere, uh, which is tricky, right? Because Scripture, of course, does apply to all people everywhere, um, but our particular application of it might not. Um, you know, our new laws are always limited, Circumstantial, they, they pertain to distinctions in the flesh. They always refer to what Paul calls elsewhere regulations like do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Referring, Paul says, to things that all perish as they are used. And he goes on, he says, these indeed, these kinds of rules, don't do this, do that, don't do this, right? These kinds of rules have indeed an appearance of wisdom, Paul says, in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh, right? So we can make all kinds of rules for the Christian life, but those rules actually won't change our heart. Elsewhere, Paul also talks about those who forbid marriage or those who forbid uh, eating certain foods. We, we make up all kinds of rules and we impose them not only on ourselves, but others. Sometimes there are good reasons for certain people to avoid certain things. These kinds of things often start out with good intentions. But we can't assume that just because we apply Scripture to our situation in a certain way, it's always going to apply in every situation to that way. The reason that's true is not because we're relativists, right? But the reason that's true is because Scripture itself has a richness to it that meets people where they are. So uh, let me give you an example, uh, a really non-controversial one, right? Uh, the Scripture's teaching on alcohol, Alcohol was created good. It's a created good. Psalm 104 tells us that. Psalm 104 verse 15 says, God created wine to gladden the heart of man. That's the purpose of wine. That's the biblical purpose of wine. Psalm 104 verse 15. But then you read Ephesians 5.18 and Ephesians 5.18 says, do not get drunk with wine. 
Right? Do not get drunk with wine. You read Proverbs 23, 20, and it says, Be not among drunkards or among gluttonous eaters of meat. Okay, fairly clear. Don't associate with these, this group of people. Then you read Matthew eleven nineteen, which says, Jesus came eating and drinking, and they, they say, Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, and a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Now, Jesus was not a, a drunk or a glutton. But people accused him of being a drunk and a glutton because he drank with sinful people, known drunks and gluttons. The very people the Proverbs warn us not to be around. And then you have uh, verses like Romans 13.1, which says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. And of course, there are laws about drinking, aren't there? Right? There are uh, laws about drinking and being underage. There are laws about drinking and driving and so on. And so when you drink, when you drink and when you don't drink, is not so clear-cut in Scripture. Not because Scripture is vague or open to interpretation. Uh, that, that's not the reason it's not clear-cut. It, not because we can pick and choose which Scriptures we want to obey in a given circumstance, right? We can't do that either. But because there is a richness to what Scripture says on the topic. What does it take to obey Jesus in this area of life? Well, it takes wisdom, right? Deep, mature, spirit-given wisdom. We can't just pick a verse and say, this is the one I'm going to follow, because there are lots of verses, right? And we need the wisdom to know how to apply them to our given situation. Now, sometimes we, we add to Scripture not by expanding on it, expanding on scriptural commands, uh, sometimes we add to it by adopting worldly standards, right? Worldly standards of beauty or worldly standards of intelligence or worldly standards of style. Or we were talking about this morning, uh, certain standards of uh, punctuality, right? And whose standards of punctuality should we follow? But in the end, whether we're adding to scriptural commands, fleshing them out for people, or whether we're just adopting worldly standards, it all actually amounts to the same thing. Why do we need to live by these clear but culture-bound rules that pertain to the flesh rather than spirit-given wisdom, right? Why are we uncomfortable with uh, the fluidity of wisdom rather than very clear rules that cover every situation? I, I think we're, uh, we, we feel we need to live by these kinds of culture-bound rules because it feels safe, right? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Okay, that's easy. We know we're doing the right thing. Life is so much easier when someone just tells you what to do and you can do it. And, and that makes it easier to prove ourselves. Right? It makes us easier to, to demonstrate that we're in the right. Uh, we, we need laws that pertain to things that we can do because only then can we do them and feel good about ourselves, both before ourselves and other people. See, but Christ has freed us from guilt and condemnation. He's also freed us from needing to prove ourselves through the distinctions of this age. I don't have to prove myself by uh, any of those kinds of rules. I need to follow Christ. I need to seek to apply the scripture to my situation in the power of the Spirit. So we're no longer under the guardianship of the law, right? Both the Mosaic law or any new law we might come up with. Uh, rather, we're free to live by spirit-given wisdom, resting in the guilt-ending work of our Savior.
We're free from the law's guilt and the law's guardianship. Now, it's important to note that we haven't freed ourselves. Uh, Paul says, for freedom, Christ has set you free. Christ, through taking the law on himself, through obeying its demands himself, through taking its punishment himself in the cross, Jesus has freed us from the law's guilt and oversight. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Now, what this means is, if Christ has not set you free, you're not free. Uh, we may have all kinds of freedoms that we enjoy in this life, right? Freedom to express yourself, freedom of speech, freedom to worship the God of your choosing, right? Freedom to live out the desires of your heart, all kinds of political freedoms and civil freedoms. But if Christ has not set you free, you are not free. You're not free from sin's guilt before God. You're not free from the temptation to live by rules pertaining only to this life, to prove yourself, for freedom, Christ has set us free, which means if Christ has not set you free, you're not free. But for those of us who are in Christ, for those of us who trust in him, for those who cling to Jesus, for freedom, Christ has set you free. But the verse goes on. Verse 1, still. <laughs> for freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore. And do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Freedom can be lost. Uh, gospel freedom is not a freedom that you can earn, but it is a freedom that you can lose. Um, now, for some people, that's because uh, we, we confess grace with our mouths, uh, but we have no grace in our hearts. Right? Eventually we change our confession, and Paul says uh, later on in verse 4, I think it is, we have fallen away from grace. As uh, John says in the book of 1 John, he said of some people of his day, they went out from the church because they were not really of the church. Right? We, we, they had a profession, they said they trusted in Jesus, and then later on they began to say they trust in something else. Went out of the church because they were not, they went out from the church because they were not of the church. But I think even, you know, for, for others, right, we're, we're truly new people in Christ. We're united to Jesus. I think we, we, I think we cannot lose our freedom because we're really in Christ. Uh, but still, we can lose our experience of that freedom. Right? So I can, be in, I can be free in Christ, but act like a slave. I can be free from the objective guilt before my Father in heaven, but still be riddled with guilty feelings. Um, I can be free from the laws of this world and still feel the need to live up in order to prove myself. I can live like a slave. Right? Whether a slave to the Old Testament or Mosaic law or to the various law systems of the culture around me. And Paul actually equates the two, which is pretty amazing. Um, he, he equates the two by the word again. Do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Uh, the Galatians were pagans before they came to know Christ. They, they weren't Jews. They were pagans before they came to know Christ. Uh, but they're tempted to turn to the Jewish law. And Paul sees their turning to the Old Testament law as a return to paganism. Right? 
do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Now, how can that be, right? How can the Old Testament law, how can Paul equate the Old Testament law with paganism? Well, because both the Mosaic law and the pagan laws all have to do with distinctions in the present age. Jew and Greek, male and female, slave and free, circumcised and uncircumcised, clean and unclean, all distinctions in the present age. Or uh, ones that we make today, right? Democrat and Republican, urban and rural, uh, country music or hip hop. Right? We can begin to evaluate ourselves and others based on whether they live up to some set of rules, some set of distinctions that only has to do with the present order of things. For Paul, that is slavery. And so I lose my freedom when I still live under guilt. I lose my freedom when I live under the laws of this age. Not just following certain rules, but when I judge my standing before God based on whether I live up to such rules. Right? It's fine to be punctual. Again, we were talking about punctuality earlier. It's fine to be punctual. It's fine to want to be punctual, to be on time to things. That's great. But if I judge my standing before God based on whether I'm on time or not, that's a problem. If I judge your standing before God based on whether you're on time or not, that's a problem too, right? But that's what we tend to do. We tend to, we tend to take laws in this life or distinctions in this world and elevate them and we judge ourselves or one another by them. That, Paul says, is slavery. That's not who we are. Who we are is, is in Christ. For freedom Christ has set you free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit yourself again to a yoke of slavery. How do we do that? How do we stand firm then? Uh, Paul actually uses the remainder of the verses to tell us, and we see three things. Uh, how, how do we stand firm? One, uh, don't try to save yourself. Two, wait for righteousness in Christ. And three, remember what is really important. Uh, so first, do not try to save yourself. You know, our temptation, our temptation, I think, always is to rely on ourselves. Right? Uh, if you want to know whether God loves you, what do you do? If you want to know whether you have God's blessing, how do you find that out? Our tendency is to look to ourselves. Right? Well, I'm, I'm a pretty good person. I haven't committed any felonies. Right? We rely on our achievements for a sense of our identity. For Israel, the temptation was to look to the Mosaic law and their fulfillment of the Mosaic law, right? I've been circumcised, I keep kosher, I tithe regularly, whatever. And Paul basically says, uh, look, it's an either or. Either you try to save yourself, prove yourself to God, or Christ will save you. Um, he says that in, in verse 2. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision something we can do in our flesh, in our own strength. Paul, I, Paul, say to you, if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. It's an either or. It's either what you can do or what he has done. If you seek to be justified, Paul goes on later, if we seek to be righteous before God, if we seek to be right with our Father, through our obedience to the law, Paul says you're severed from Christ. You've fallen away from grace. It's an either or. There's no law plus Christ. 
right? It's not me and Jesus saving me together. You can't have a little bit of grace and a little bit of works. Now, you might wonder, why not? Right? I mean, that, we, we have lots of other things in life like that, a little of this, a little of that. Why not a little of grace and a little of works? Why not a little bit of Jesus and a little bit of me? Well, for one thing, these are two totally different systems of salvation, right? The works versus faith. Trusting in myself and my obedience versus trusting in Jesus and his obedience. Besides that, I mean, our works can really add nothing to Jesus, can we? I mean, how can our righteousness add something to Jesus' righteousness? Um, you know, if we want to go the route of works, uh, the standard for our works is perfection. Paul says in verse 3 uh, that if you accept circumcision, you're obligated to keep the whole law. So if you want to go that way, okay, here's the standard. Do it all. The Mosaic law as a whole is a whole thing. You can't take it piecemeal. Uh, if you want to live up to God's standard, we ultimately have to face God's moral law and fulfill it perfectly. Now, the, the problem is, right, uh, to keep the whole law and fail at one point even, James tells us, is to be guilty of all of it. The law holds together. To disobey God in any one area is to disobey God, period. And so what can I add to Jesus' work? Jesus' work is perfect. His righteousness is perfect. All of my works are tainted with sin. All my best works are undone by even one moment of failure and weakness. So if I'm trying to weave uh, my righteousness together with Jesus' righteousness, the end result is a garment striped with my sin. So to add our righteousness to Jesus is actually to take away from Jesus' righteousness. The only thing we can add is our sin. We can only make things worse. Besides that, if it were Jesus' righteousness plus my righteousness that, that made me right with God, when would you know you had done enough? I mean, if we're, if we're obligated to keep the whole law, that means I'm never sure if I've done enough. And I've always got to do more the next day. I'm always pretty sure I haven't done everything. Which means, as one writer put it, I'm going to be touchy and insecure about my behavior. I'm going to be discouraged by my failure. I'm going to be weary because uh, from this push, this drive to live up. I'm going to be full of fear because of my failures, future failures. I'm afraid that I'm not going to live up. I'm going to be full of guilt because of past failures, I haven't lived up. And all of that is going to alternate with pride and self-assurance and boasting when I think I've actually done something right. And so when we're hypersensitive to criticism on the one hand, or when we're boastful in our accomplishments on the other, right, it's a good sign that I'm actually trusting in myself as my Savior. I'm trusting in my works. I'm giving them too much importance because I can't stand it when you take away from it by criticizing me. And I feel the need to point out how well I did when I've done something good. Sensitivity, oversensitivity, and, and boasting are signs that I'm trusting in myself rather than in my Savior. Well, self and Jesus are mutually exclusive saviors, right? Christ didn't say, do your best and I'll help out, you know, when you need it. Sometimes we say that to our kids, right? That's an okay thing to say. Like, um, you, you know, you, you work on your math homework and um, you, you do those problems. When you fall into trouble, you let me know and I'll help you out. I never say that to my kids because they, they know math better than I do. But you might say that. Someone might say that. Deborah might say that. Uh, that's not what's going on here. 
Christ saves dead men. He offers sinners who have no righteousness his own perfect righteousness. He offers us his robe of glory. It's not patchwork, a little of me and a little of Jesus. It's 100% pure Jesus. So don't try to save yourself first, right? Let, let Jesus save you. Don't add to his work. You'll only end up taking away your own freedom. The second, wait for righteousness in Christ. Look at verse 5. Verse 5 says, For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. Paul says the way that the Christian lives out his or her freedom is not trying to prove yourself, but waiting for God to approve of you in Jesus. What, what Paul says here is, is through the Spirit, and as we look back on Galatians, we see that's not through the law, right? Through the Spirit, not through the law. By faith, not by works, we eagerly wait not actively attempt to attain by our own strength, right? So we are waiting for something. What are we waiting for? What is it that through the Spirit, by faith, we eagerly await? It's the hope of righteousness. Now, hope is not an uncertain uh, wish for a questionable outcome. That's the way we often use the word, like, oh, I really hope it doesn't rain today, or I really hope somebody turns the heat on, or something like that. <laughs> Hope is not an uncertain wish for a questionable outcome, but biblically, hope is a full assurance of something future. Hope is being sure of what we hope for, certain of what we do not see. And so that's faith. Faith is being sure of what we hope for, certain of what we do not see. But hope there is a certainty, a certainty. <clears throat> what is it that Christians are so sure, so certain, that we will receive? What is our hope, according to Paul? That hope is righteousness, which is kind of interesting. Hope, we hope for righteousness. Now, if I am in Christ and Christ is in me, I am righteous in God's sight right now. Right? If, if you've trusted in Jesus, you are righteous in God's sight Right now, this very moment, God has declared us righteous in Christ the moment we first believed. But it is also true that God will declare me righteous on the judgment day. I fully expect to hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. Not because I'm all that good or all that faithful, but because I will be found in Christ. And so I have Christ's righteousness presently, but I also have the hope of righteousness. We have been justified, declared righteous in Christ already, but it's also true, uh, this is the way the Westminster Confession of Faith puts it, the Westminster Shorter Catechism, I think, that we will be openly acknowledged and acquitted on the last day. Right? Openly acknowledged and acquitted. But those two acts what God has done and what he will do, are really one and the same attitude of God toward us. And they have the same basis, right? We are justified freely as a gift. We have believed in Jesus, Paul says, in order to be justified by the faithfulness of Jesus. Galatians 2.16.
right? We're not justified by our own faithfulness, not by our own works, right? Not by our own law keeping. And one way to get at the difference between, uh, between many different religions, one way even to get at the difference between uh, different versions of Christianity is to ask the question, uh, is there a judgment to come in time and space? And on what basis will people be judged? Uh, Christianity teaches that God will judge everyone according to what he has done. It says that our, our, our behavior will be the basis of God's judgment. But, but, it's a big but, uh, but those who trust in Christ have a shelter from the storm of that judgment. Right? We are declared righteous by God already in Christ, and so we have the full expectation of being declared righteous by God on the last day. We will, we will be able to stand on judgment day in Christ's righteousness without fear. So we don't, we don't need to prove ourselves now because we know that God is going to openly acknowledge us then. I don't need to prove anything because God is going to openly acknowledge me then, which is a, a way of saying I don't have to prove myself because I know God will approve of me on the last day. Not because of anything that I've done, but because I am in Jesus. So Jesus, right, is, is a great Savior, right? Don't, don't try to add to his work, but wait for God's open declaration of righteousness on the last day. Wait for it. It's coming. It's certain. Wait for it. Finally, remember what is important. Look at verse 6. Verse 6 says, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything but only faith working through love. One of the ways that we lose our freedom is by trying to add to Jesus' work, right, rather than resting in our identity in Christ. But this often happens because we forget what is really important. <coughs> There are lots of distinctions in this life, aren't there? Uh, the ones that Paul is dealing with, circumcision and uncircumcision. You have religious and unreligious. You have moral and immoral. You have Democrat and Republican. You have black and white, rich and poor, beautiful and ugly, strong and weak, smart and dumb, liberal conservative, educated, uneducated. Right? You have distinctions of culture and taste, uh, regional distinctions, national distinctions, ethnic distinctions. But none of these are the distinction that really matters. Because what matters is whether we belong to Christ or not. I was talking with the elders this week, and it came up that one of the things that I think is, is true about our church, I hope is true about our church, and I hope will remain true about our church, is that we're not uh, an issues-oriented church. Uh, we're not going to tell you what to think about different issues. Uh, we're not going to tell you what to think about political policy. Uh, we're not going to tell you what to think about whether to send your kids to public school or private school or Christian school or classical school or homeschool. And we can encourage hearty debate about those things. Uh, we can talk about those things. We can discuss those things. We can discuss politics even. We can wrestle together with those things. But we can do that because what truly matters is who we are in Christ, not where we land on those issues. Or uh, another example, right? In, in Christ, uh, again, non-controversial examples, right? In Christ, there is no gun control or gun rights. 
One, because scripture doesn't determine that issue for us. There may be principles that apply. It doesn't determine that issue. And two, more importantly, your standing with God is not determined by where you stand on that issue. It's just not. We can argue about it. We can come to conclusions. We can believe other people are wrong. That's okay, right? You can, you can have a firm conclusion, but we can't break fellowship over it. We can't view those who disagree with us as less than. We can't believe that our standing with God is determined by our stance on that issue. Because the distinction that really matters is not where you land on that issue, but whether you are in Christ or not. Your identity should not be in whether you believe in gun control or gun rights, right? You can have a strong opinion on it, but it should not be so strong that it trumps who you are in Christ. Our issue, if we have an issue here at this pulpit, our issue is grace. The grace of God in Christ, right? The love of the Father found in the cross and poured out on us by the Spirit. Now, grace applies to the way you engage in politics and it applies to the way you raise your kids and it applies to how you think about guns and it applies to the way you think about music and art and everything else in life and and i hope right that together we will do that we will think about how grace applies to all of these things but that is different from being issues oriented right that is different from taking sides in the worldly debate. We can speak about what the scriptures say. We can apply it to those things and wrestle together. But I think there's a difference. I hope, I hope there's a difference there. Why is this so important? Why, why am I so against being issues-oriented? Well, because in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. It's not that one is better and the other is worse. They don't count for anything, neither. Right? Pick your issue. Right? Um, in Christ Jesus, uh, neither vegetarian nor vegan nor meat eater counts for anything. In, in Christ, uh, neither one ethnicity nor another counts for anything. In Christ, neither being educated nor uneducated counts for anything. When we look to the issues of this age to prove ourselves to God, like, look, God, I have this degree. Look at how great I am. Or, look, God, I, I, I've landed on this side of this issue. It's like saying, God loves me more because I can do a handstand longer. Right? Uh, God cares where I am morally, right? Outside of Christ, I'm a guilty mess, however good I might look. Inside of Christ, I'm still a mess, but I'm righteous before him. Again, I'm not saying we can't disagree on all kinds of things. I'm not saying we can't discuss them. I don't even want to say that there aren't important biblical issues that go above and beyond being joined to Christ. That is true, right? Uh, you know, I happen to believe that the Presbyterian form of church government is biblical, right? even important. But I don't think it determines where you stand in Jesus. What does Paul say is important? Faith working through love. A belief in Jesus that takes root in our hearts and issues in love. We're going to talk about love in the, in the coming weeks because Paul's going to keep digging in more uh, to what love looks like. But uh, this is one of the things that shows us 
right? That when Paul talks about freedom from the law, it's not the same as being uh, free from morality, right? We're still called to love. We're free from guilt when we fail to love, that's for sure. We're free from judgment when we fail to love, which we will do. But we're still called to love. But we must avoid turning love into a series of culture-bound checkboxes, right? And then seeing that as determining my standing with God. Like, here's the way I love, X, Y, and Z. I've done it, so I'm good with God, or I haven't done it, so I'm bad with God. No. Our identity is in Christ. And the most important question for each one of us is, where do I stand with Jesus, right? If, if you are in Christ, for freedom Christ has set you free. You are free from the law's condemnation. You are no longer guilty before the Father. You are free from the law's guardianship. You don't have to prove yourself through the flesh. Stand firm in that freedom. Don't try to, to help Jesus out by looking to some distinction in this life to prove yourself. Being on one side or the other of the political aisle or of the cultural aisle or of an economic aisle or of the style aisle won't get you any closer to Jesus than will standing on your head. Remember what is really important, faith working through love, a belief in Jesus that takes root in our hearts and issues in a life of love for God and our neighbor. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the work of Jesus. We thank you for the blood of Jesus and the righteousness of Jesus. We thank you for uh, his willingness to bear our sin in the cross. And we thank you for his resurrection victory, uh, where he was declared righteous in the resurrection and exalted to your right hand. And we thank you, Father, that, that all we need to do is trust in him, look to him by faith. And we are joined to him, and his victory becomes our victory. His righteousness, our righteousness. His exaltation, our exaltation. Help us to grasp this more and more and to rest in it more and more as we walk through life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.